He was a police officer in the United Kingdom. He's here to talk about his years of experience policing in England, in particular the violence associated from drug gangs in the area, his own exposure to violence and trauma, his struggles with post-traumatic stress, why he left policing, and what he's doing today. Welcome to the Law Enforcement Today radio show. I'm your host. My name's John J. Wiley. In addition to being a radio broadcaster, I'm a retired police sergeant. For the latest news articles and much more, check out our website, letradioshow.com. In the Law Enforcement Today show, we'll be joined by special guests. We'll be talking about their experiences and issues affecting law enforcement officers, first responders, their families, their community, and victims of horrendous crimes. Be sure to like us on Facebook. Our page is Law Enforcement Today Radio Show. Check out the daily articles on our website, letradioshow.com. And while you're there, download our free app. This portion of the Law Enforcement Today Radio Show is brought to you in part by Pet Rescue Life Facebook page. Everyone's welcome at the Pet Rescue Life Facebook page, where you'll find fun, informative, and enjoyable posts daily. Purebred, mixed breeds, rescues, We love them all. Be sure to like the Pet Rescue Life Facebook page. Calling us from Great Britain, United Kingdom, England. I never know what to say because if I say United Kingdom, they'll say it's England. If I say it's England, they'll say it's Great Britain. So calling us from that area of the world across the pond, as they say, is Jim Nixon. Jim, thanks for being a guest on the show. Very much appreciated. Uh, hi, John. Thank you today. It's been brilliant to, uh, to be asked to come on here. And you can call it whatever you like. Whereabouts in England are you? Right, I'm in the centre, so I'm in Birmingham. So it's about 120 miles from London, the, the capital. So I'm bang right in the middle of the UK. Jim is a former law enforcement officer from the United Kingdom. We're going to talk about his career. We're going to talk about a lot of things that people don't really understand. There's a lot of similarities. There's some difference between American policing and uh, policing in England, and I'm by no means an expert, but one thing that seems to be a, a, a common thread, a common feature, is violence, trauma, and lots of it. And you've had your own exposure to the after effects of that. Am I correct? Yeah, I am, unfortunately, John, and that was probably the catalyst that why I left after 20 years. I was a sergeant like yourself, and uh, yeah, that's uh, that, that's exactly why um, I left because I suffered quite a bad trauma on duty. Um, when somebody was, uh, was was run over in front of me in, uh, in a, by a car, and uh, it was just horrific, and it just had a massive, massive impact on on my life and my career. Before we get into the conversation about your career, why don't we go ahead and talk about that? Here's one thing I found: when we get the really ugly stuff out of the way first, it seems to be an easier conversation. So take us back to the incident, for lack of better words, that was a straw that broke the camel's back. Yeah, I'd, um, it was about 2014. It was a really good period, actually, for me. I was a sergeant in, in charge of a really proactive community team. We had a very, very busy area to police. And it, I've, I've got to say, it was probably one of the highlights of my time. In, and we were riding in the crest of a wave. We were locking up a lot of people. We were working with a lot of young people and getting them off you know, off the streets and into you know, proper diversionary kind of stuff. But we had this one particular kid that we tried to work with. We really put some time and effort into him, but he was just off the rails and he just kept committing lots and lots of crime. And we'd locked him up probably about three or four times and he was on bail conditions not to go to a certain area because he'd been intimidating and threatening 
a particular um, shop within uh, a particular precinct. And we, we had sufficient evidence to go and lock him up for breach of bail. And uh, a couple of my officers went into his bedroom. I stayed outside. I thought that they got him secure. And then when I went round to the front of the house, the kid ran down the stairs as fast as he could and pushed past me. I didn't really have a chance to kind of uh, even you know, tackle him or anything. You know, just took me by surprise. And he ran to the top of the, 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 the pathway. And he could have took it the, you know, the left or the right turn, but unfortunately he decided to run straight across the road. And as he entered the road, and I was literally right by the curb, um, he was struck by a car. He was elevated quite high up into the air, I probably think at least 20 foot, and he sort of landed over the other side of the road. And you just stand there and you just see as like a surreal moment. But of course, you know yourself, John, as the sergeant there, you've still got a job to do and you've still got to pay, preserve life um, and manage that scene. And it was really important that I did that. Um, One thing that made it really complex as well, the family who were very anti because we were in the process of locking their son up. Um, He he was there lining the road unconscious, but they wouldn't let me or my officers administer first aid. So I'm on my radio, basically, you know, come on, I need help, I need help. You know that kind of scenario where people say, when you're waiting for an ambulance or you're waiting for help, it just seems to take forever. It probably, in reality, John, was probably about a three, four-minute wait. But when you're in that situation, you'll be absolutely verbally abused. And every time you go to touch this guy, they were, like, you know, fending us off. It was really difficult. Luckily for us, an off-duty nurse had seen the accident and she came and she administered first aid. Uh, and then it allowed me to sort of like you know, manage the scene and manage the, you know, the initial kind of investigation until a good mate of mine, another sergeant, came and took over and made sure that that scene was all sorted and all secure. Um, but it was a horrific, horrific experience. Um, it was touch and go for a while with his kid, you know, he was in a coma for about a month and uh, he, he did suffer some mild brain damage. But what really took the wind out of my sail, John, was that on the night of the incident, the uh, the force incident managers we call it in the UK came out, saw us and uh, our professional standards um, department came out and they were kind of really good with us and they said, you know, no problem, it's absolutely fine, you'll all be treated as witnesses. And then because certain people made statements that were inaccurate, we were then served with regulation notices, as they call it in the UK, and we were then treated as suspects. So we were all then interviewed under caution, on tape, by the Independent Police Commission, as it was named then. And that really was a bad, bad experience for me and for my colleagues. Uh, we were exonerated. There was never any action taken against us because we did nothing wrong. But what 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 then happened, John, was that I just went down ill mentally and I kept getting flashbacks. I started to make very irrational decisions, and this went on for about a couple of years. And it got got so low that you know my family were really worried about me. Um, I wasn't sleeping. And I'm, I'm, I'm not going to be, uh, I'm not going to beat around the bush here. There was, there was a number of occasions where I was seriously thinking about ending it. You know, I'd lie in bed. I was telling someone about this the other day, actually. I'd lie in bed and I'd be thinking about what would be the easiest way to kind of end it all because I just can't keep going on with this kind of flashback and this kind of PTSD. 
And um, I'd come up with all kinds of permutations. And I think it was really just my family that saved me in the end because I realised that if I did take my own life, then the, 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 you know, the pain that they would suffer for, 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 for the rest of their lives would, 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 would far outweigh me taking my own. So um, what I did in 2016 was I made a conscious effort to leave the police service after 20 years, which is a big deal, you know, in the UK. People just don't leave the police after 20 years. And um, I, I started to work in the broader area of community safety. And um, it, it's just been the best thing that I ever did. And my career now is, is, is just so back on track. One of the things that you hit on, Jim that I can tell you from my own experience is when you're in a position where you have to defend yourself, you've done nothing wrong, it makes a bad situation already worse. And I'm sure if your experience in policing was anything like mine, violence is violence. People love to make a a big deal out of gun violence, knife violence, everything else. Violence is violence. Trauma is trauma. And the incident involving the young man getting hit by the car and then the inquiry afterwards may have been the straw that broke the camel's back. We are talking with Jim Nixon. He is a former law enforcement officer for the United Kingdom. This is the Law Enforcement Today show. We're going to take a short break, and we will be right back. One of the most frequent questions we see is, where can I find great podcasts? Do you have any suggestions? Yes, we do. So we decided to start our own podcast network on Law Enforcement Today. That's right. You can find top podcasts about law enforcement on our website and our free app. Go to letradioshow.com, click the Be Heard tab, and there you'll find the LET Podcast Network. We'll be adding more podcasts from first responders and more. Again, to find the Law Enforcement Today Podcast Network, go to letradioshow.com and click on the Be Heard in our menu or download our free app today at letradioshow.com. This show is brought to you in part by the Change of Culture podcast, hosted by Autumn, a female cop. She suffered a career-ending injury, went through a deep depression, and shares her recovery and mission to help others. Check out her website, autumnclifford.com. That's Autumn, A-U-T-U-M. And Clifford.com. Calling us from Birmingham, England, United Kingdom. We have Jim Nixon on the phone. Jim is a former law enforcement officer from the United Kingdom. And we're going to break, Jim. You're talking about leaving your career after 20 years as a sergeant. Were you able to retire or did you say, that's it, I'm done? Yeah, what, what happened? I wasn't, I wasn't pensioned off or anything, John. What happened was when I first joined the police service, um, we weren't paid an awful lot. I joined in 95 and uh, we weren't paid an awful lot of money then. I had two young kids at home and uh, I decided not to go into the police pension for the first 10 years. So after 10 years, I went in and I think what that gave me was a way out, you know, because I, my wife had started a business, you know, that was starting to sort of take off. And so we kind of looked at it as that being our pension. So I just made the conscious decision to get out of it because it, it just was starting to take such a toll on my mental health that I knew that if I stayed there for any longer, and I could see the writing on the wall as well, John, you know, since I left in 2016, policing has been hit massively in the UK, absolutely massively. And they, you know, particularly with COVID. So 
It was a great decision, really. And I think a lot of people actually thought back then I had some kind of crystal ball because a lot of people really are in awe of me, really, for doing what I did, but for getting out at the right time because, boy, did I get out at the right time. Well, I appreciate your service. I want to say thank you. I always forget to do that. And one of the things about leaving, my career ended suddenly. I got hurt. I thought I sprained my wrist and I wanted to have multiple surgeries. I have two big steel plates in my right hand. It's totally fused. I was retired at the age of 33. And there's very few things I will I will correct people about. In the United States, they throw around terms that I have a big problem with. One is they'll say ex-police former or retired and when someone calls me an ex-cop i always correct them say it's retired and when i say retired that could mean a pension that could mean you leave of your own accord in good standing former means you didn't do your whole career you left your own decision earlier in your career an ex is someone who had to quit or was fired due to bad pretenses or or bad actions Uh, so when someone says ex-cop to me i get really offended yeah, I get that. And I think you're always, you know, once a cop, you're always a cop in my eyes. You know, you it's in the blood. And because I've continued to work with police officers day in, day out since I left in 2016, I'm still very much part of the family. And actually, I think because of the work I do now, John, I sort of, I sort of work in community safety. Uh, I worked in housing and now I now work for a local authority um, in uh, in the Midlands where I live. I think you have that credibility. You know, people respect me because I do know what I'm talking about and that rich experience, as you know yourself, that you gain from being a police officer, it really does put you in good stead when you are outside in kind of city street, for want of a better word. So, yeah, it, it, it's really been a great journey for me since 2016, but I'll always be immensely proud of what I achieved in 20 years. You should be. And I, like I said, that's one of the things I hold on to. I have my integrity. I have my honor. I serve with pride and dignity. Uh, and you did as well. So I'm glad you clarified that. And I'm also glad to hear that you still kind of have your thumb on the pulse of what's going on in the policing world where you're from. And that people look at you. There's a big difference between knowing something from college, knowing something from university or reading in a book, and there's a big difference between actually experiencing and living it. And one of the things that a lot of people, especially in the United States, don't comprehend, thanks to Hollywood, is that they're always a, make a big distinction between gun violence, knife violence, and violence. I always say violence is violence, and trauma is trauma. It doesn't matter what weapons they use, the end result is the same. How violent was it where you were policing? I think when I first started policing, John, in 95, we're always a little bit behind in the UK, I think. And I think what I saw really was more, when I talk about violence, a lot of it was more fighting. It was more fights. It was more domestic abuse. There wasn't really an awful lot of weapons being produced by people. Gun crime was very few and far between. Knife crime really was at that time. But as I got into policing, I saw more and more of those kind of types of violence being used against people. So we started to see the knives being used and people getting stabbed rather than people just having normal sort of fist fights. We started to see a lot more gun crime. You know, we was becoming a regular thing where people, not necessarily that we'd be murdered, but they'd certainly have a couple of bullets put in their arm or in their legs just to kind of warn, warn them off if it was sort of part of a drug kind of issue 
And um, yeah, it started to really escalate. And, and it's at a point now where we're now seeing, I wouldn't say gun crime at the moment is the big deal here. What's the big deal here at the moment? And one of the things that I'm sort of campaigning around is knife crime. And what we're seeing a lot of now is kids killing kids. Um, only last week, a 14-year-old boy who was mixed up in drugs got murdered, stabbed to death. Um, it's a regular occurrence, you know, you know, where I live, London, in particular Manchester, we are seeing an awful lot of this. And this is kids getting recruited by drug gangs to go and do their dirty work because what they realised was that kids are a great commodity, particularly vulnerable kids. They can take the risk for the drug dealers in the UK and probably the rest of the world, but it's definitely taken off in my country. And uh, unfortunately, the consequence of that, John, is that we are seeing a lot more death related to kids and it, it, it's really quite concerning and we really do need to do more more collaborative work to try and tackle this problem and this is something i'm really ferociously uh, sort of campaigning for in the uk at the moment because it's got to stop you know we're ruining so many lives and it can be prevented we have such an issue with that and in my career and i started in 1980 so i'm significantly older than you and I did rough estimates of the amount of homicides. I'll, I'll give you a story. I went to Ireland for the first time a couple of years ago, and I believe they had 79 homicides in Ireland for that year, for the entire country. And that was like 4.75 million people. Baltimore, where I policed, had 300 some odd homicides with 660,000 people. And if I look back from 1980, I think the numbers close to 50,000 people have been murdered. It's accepted as business as usual, and no one seems to do anything about it. And I know the police do. I know they care. I know they're out there, but they can't do it by themselves. They can't do it all alone. I think the key point here, John, is that you've got to you've got to track back a little bit. And, I, and again, I, I bang on about this a lot. You've got to you've got to ask yourself the question. The police are great. We're really good at you know. Detecting crime, locking people up, that's great. That's a, that's, that's a good part of our job and, and taking people off the streets. But what I'm trying to sort of re-educate people around now is that we've got to start getting into the reason why people are prepared to kill another human being. You've got to track back and look at, you mentioned earlier about traumatic experiences. I think when you start to um, investigate the upbringing of most of these people that get involved in these type of homicides, whether sometimes they're a victim or whether they are um, the perpetrator, I think there's a sorry story to tell. I'm not saying every single perpetrator or every single victim, but I think there's a pattern. And I think where we need to start being more savvy is prevention and looking at these kids when they're young, identifying. We're going to take a short break. Ways. We are talking with Jim Nixon, calling us all the way from England. He's a former police officer in the United Kingdom. He's a podcaster. He works community safety. There's so much to talk about. Don't go anywhere. We will be right back. Hey, folks, when you have a chance, check out our Facebook page. Do a search on Facebook for Law Enforcement Today Radio Show. When you get there, Click like and follow. That's click like and follow Law Enforcement Today Radio Show on Facebook. This is the Law Enforcement Today Show. We're talking with Jim Nixon calling us from United Kingdom. He's a former law enforcement officer from 
the Birmingham area. He's also working in community safety. He's a podcaster as well. We'll talk about his podcast in a few moments. One of the things you talked about, Jim, in your career is you exposed to a lot of violence, a lot of trauma. Uh, you had your own issues of post-traumatic stress. And there's a big difference, in my opinion, with one incident and then the cumulative effect. And for most people I know that have been on the show, they've gone through years and years and years of violence in policing, and then there's one incident that kind of pushes them over the edge. Would that be a good way of describing what happened with you? Yeah, I think so, John. I also think what you picked up on earlier, the the fact that I was investigated after the events was, I think, an overriding factor for me. But yeah, I think you're right. If you think about a normal sort of daily life, and no excuses, we put ourselves in, you know, in the front line, you know, it's our decision to be a cop, to be an officer. But, you know, you're going from job, you know yourself, you're going from job to job to job. You're dealing with lots of different traumatic experiences. You know, it can be a road traffic accident one minute, it can be a sudden death the next, it can be a murder, it can be all sorts of things. And the cop's kind of job really is to go on is, you know, mop up, sort it all out, be the, be the, you know, the person you know, that calms it all down, he's the voice of reason. And no one really ever sort of thinks about that particular officer. And I think statistics will say that an officer is probably five or six times more likely to suffer from PTSD than your average person on the ground because of the sort of things that you see. And I think, you know, one of the things that probably wasn't really at the level that I would like liked it to be was the, 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 the aftercare the officers are given. Um, you know, we're sort of brought up, as I'm sure it is in the States, to be, you know, this roughy toughy kind of guy uh, to just brush it off and get on with it. And I'll be honest with you, when I first joined in 95, and probably well into the 90s, and probably into the early 2000s, if I'd have gone to work and admitted that I had a mental health issue and that I was struggling because of what I was seeing, no, 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 no joke, I would have been ostracised. And I've actually seen officers that have been ostracised because of that. I remember a story I was told once about a guy that lost, lost you know, he kind of couldn't cope anymore because of something traumatic he'd seen. And he just got in a car and he drove hundreds of miles and they found him. You know, he was about to commit suicide. But that guy never got his career on track. And he was just labelled you know, like a mental health case. And people used to sort of laugh and, and sort of snigger behind his back. And... I mean, I look at that now, Johnny, and I think that is just so wrong. Yeah. You know, we need to give officers all the help and support that they can get. We're human beings. We're just like everybody else. We're not superhuman. We are the public. You know, the police are the public, and the public are the police, aren't they? We're all just human beings trying to do a job and trying to protect people. And um, I, I want to really see improvements in this because the stigma attached to mental health needs to go not just in policing, but in society. And I've been very vocal about that. And I've done quite a lot of posting, both videos and sort of written posts about my own journeys and, and being quite open and honest. And hopefully people can take that, you know, and, and, and say, well, if Jim's kind of posting about it, then it's, it's okay to do it. And I'm just going to carry on doing it, you know, because we are all human beings and we all need the care and support. Uh, and as you know, yourself, you know, PTSD doesn't just, go overnight and um, it really doesn't it, it, I, I can constantly watch television programs and if, say for example a car knocks somebody over and I don't get any warning it just brings back the hot sweats and the, and the panics and the palpitations 
Um, it actually happened to me a couple of nights ago while I was watching the TV programme. So it stays with you, and it, it doesn't really ever go away. So, um, yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's tough, but um, you know, I'm in a much better place than I was sort of, uh, four or five years ago. I'm glad you said that. I was going to ask, how are you doing today? I am in a brilliant place. Um, I think the podcast has been absolutely brilliant for me. I left the police. I started to work in housing in 2016 um, and learned all about housing and community safety and linked to housing. And then I went up to um, a city called Stoke-on-Trent, which is about 40 miles away from where I live. And uh, I'm their uh, anti-social behaviour manager. I don't think that's really a term that's used much in America. But, um, but I, I, I cover all that and I'm the operational lead up there. Um, but the podcast has been a good, I know we'll talk about it a bit more in a minute, but the podcast has been brilliant for me. You know, um, It's just opened up a massive opportunity. I meet great people like you and, and other people that we meet in Clubhouse and, and stuff like that. It's, um, it's, it's just opened up a new world to me. And, By the way, uh, you mentioned Clubhouse. Like, there, there's so many people on the Clubhouse drop-in audio chat. If you have that, and if you don't get it, look for me. Uh, it's John, let me initial J, Wiley, uh, search at L-E-T radio show. Uh, and look for Jim Nixon as well. Lots of people I met from all over the world. One of the things that we didn't get to talk about on there is I don't talk about it with my wife I don't talk about a lot of people because I don't like the questions they ask but the exposure to the violence it was non-stop we had days where we get out of roll call and we switch cars we didn't have a take-home car you got your battery you get the the radio you get in the car and there'd be three calls stacked up and it would be shooting it would be you know burglaries robberies uh, sexual assaults domestic violence it was never ending and you made a crucial point when I was a police officer, you had to handle it. And I remember crying many times in a patrol car after calls, especially calls involving violence against children. However, as a sergeant, it's a different ball of wax because I had to make sure that the officers were doing their job. I had to make sure they're okay. And you said something earlier when you had the incident where the, the, the guy was struck by the car, you couldn't really react to it even though you were horrified about what happened because you were a sergeant and you're responsible for the scene and you have to the old term we used was suck it up buttercup you have a job to do yeah absolutely and you're absolutely right and i think you know as a sergeant you know yourself john you're still operational you're still out there and i was very much a very proactive sergeant when i did response duties you know the patrol duties which but normally when you get promoted in the uk you tend to go out on patrol and do the response duties and um, you're right, you know, my, my responsibility was for those guys and girls that I was right on, that were under my command. So I actually think of a sergeant's role is even more vulnerable because the sergeant is the support mechanism for those officers on the ground. But what I kind of found is that the, the, the rank above me, which in the UK is inspector, because you're the sergeant, there's not that level of support. So it, I think it probably... The trauma and the um, the experience of those kind of repetitive, violent you know, kind of experiences, they do take its toll on you as a sergeant, I think, because there's no real support. Everybody just looks to you as Mr. Invincible and that, you know, how dare you have any weakness because you're the sergeant and you're in charge of that team. It's a very, very difficult rank, actually, guy, I think. Oh, it's, it's, it's really tough. But it's a, it's, it's a very, very difficult rank. And uh, I, I think it's, uh, it takes a lot to get there. 
in the UK. I don't know how, how hard it is. As I'm sure it's just as equally as difficult as a, a US officer. But it's um, it, it's it's a really really important rank within policing, and and it will be it will be forever. And I'm very proud that I managed to get to that rank and experience it for myself. How long were you a sergeant out of your 20 year career? Uh, 12 years I was a sergeant for. So um, yeah, I, I did 12 years, and uh, it was it was a great time. You know, I felt really really proud of what I did as a sergeant. Did lots of different roles, but mainly in, in kind of community policing, and uh, it was just the best time. It was really just those last couple of years, you know, when things just sort of took their toll on me. Um, but I, I will always look back on that time as a sergeant as a, an immensely proud time. And actually, in the last couple of years, I actually was nominated for um, Officer of the Year. Uh, I think it was 2014. I made the last three of the whole the whole force. So that was that was a really nice kind of recognition to to be given by my own force as well. So it just shows that you were making a difference. We're going to take a short break. We're talking with Jim Nixon. He's a former law enforcement officer from the United Kingdom, working community safety. He's also a podcaster. There's so much to talk about coming up on a Law Enforcement Today show. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. Want to fly somewhere? Looking for cheap flights or cheap tickets? Then call. That's right. Call the low-cost airline travel hotline now for prices so low, we can't publish them anywhere. Low-cost airlines has all kinds of cheap travel deals. Fly domestically and save up to 75%. You can even fly internationally and save even more. Yes, fly anywhere in the world and save a lot of money on your plane tickets. We'll even save you money with cheap travel deals on hotels, rental cars, even complete travel packages. So don't book your tickets until you call us first for the absolute cheapest prices on U.S. and international airline tickets and hotels. Call right now for prices so low they can't be published. Travel experts are here 24-7 to help. 800-451-8603 That's 800-451-8603 Back to our conversation with Jim Nixon. He is calling us from Birmingham, England. He is a former law enforcement officer. Jim, did I say it right this time? Yeah, you do really well, John. I think you're having a good, good attempt at it. Well, I might as well just take credit for being able to speak the Queen's English because I can now say the name of the town you're from. So. <laughs> <laughs> I, I also watch those shows. It's the earlier Leeds and, and Yorkshire and all those other ones. I, I love, I got to go visit there someday. I will get there, I promise. But when I have a, a vision in my head of England, I have visions of very peaceful society, very proper, very polite people. And I'm sure there's a lot of that. I look at, I think of cottages and biscuits and tea and no bad stuff. That's what I think of when I think of England. But that's not what your career was like, was it? No, it's not. So there's a lot of urban areas in the UK, you know, places like where I live in Birmingham. You've got obviously your massive urban areas in Liverpool and London and Manchester and also, you know, lots of issues up in Scotland, you know, which is obviously a part of the United Kingdom. So, yeah, there's a lot of deprivation. There's a, there's a lot of crime. There's a lot of antisocial behaviour. Yeah, it's a big... It's a, it's, it's, it, yeah, you're right. There's idyllic parts, very idyllic parts in the UK. Very. But, but not where you were policing. Very dark. And by the way, my wife and I love the show... 
Peaky Blinders. We watched the Netflix. That's uh, set in Birmingham. I guess it was after it's, World War One. Yeah, yeah. And in fact, yeah. In fact, I, uh, I I recently did a podcast with a Peaky Blinders expert, a guy called Carl Chin, and uh, he actually talks about on my show about the real Peaky Blinders. He's a he's an expert on area. So uh, yeah, it's a, it's it, it's, a, it's a subject very dear to my heart. To be honest with you, I've noticed. What I'm getting at is. Well, by the way, I love the show. And my wife, by the way, she is a very nice person. She'll walk around the house and she'll be quoting Arthur Shelby at the top of her lungs using profanity. But they were a violent group. And this is talking about over 100 years ago that this was going on. So that's how long the violent drug-related problems have been going on in your part of the of United Kingdom. Oh, yeah. I mean, uh, as I say, when we were talking about it a couple of weeks ago on my show, uh, they were a very, very violent gang. But they were the way that it's portrayed in the Peaky Blinders, obviously it's a drama. Um, and the real Peaky Blinders were actually just normal working class people that were extremely violent and sort of ruled the, sort of the streets of Birmingham. And um, yeah, they took no prisoners at the end of the day. There's some very violent stuff that went on in those days. But it's certainly very different to the way that it's portrayed in the in the drama that you say I see on the uh, the BBC program over in the states. Yeah, they, they portray them as being kind of okay people. I wouldn't mind hanging out with them. But the reality is, <laughs> and that's the way they do it here in the United States with with organized crime movies. The gangsters are portrayed as hey, they're kind of okay, and the police are portrayed as bumbling, stumbling idiots, and the corrections officers are treated even portrayed even worse. Yeah, that's absolutely right. That's absolutely right. It's exactly the same here, and uh, yeah, it's uh, it's not quite like that, as we both know, isn't it? You know, it's not quite like that at all. There's some amazing officers, very intelligent officers that I've worked with over the years, who would give anybody a run for their money. I can believe you, you know, believe you, me. They really can. So the violence and violent crime still permeating the society, and where you're from in England? Oh yeah, I mean. We touched on it a little bit earlier, John. You know, drugs is a massive, massive problem in the UK now. And uh, I said earlier, there's there's a there's a there's a thing what we call county lines now. So what what drug drug gangs are doing now in the UK is they're recruiting the. You mentioned earlier about education, and education is a big issue in the UK. It's not where we want it to be. Lots and lots of kids get kicked out of school because of behaviour issues. They then go to these what we call pupil referral units. They do very very little time there. And what happens is that these kids become rich pickings and they're recruited. And then what they, what, they, what they do is the gangs then will send them out to more rural areas within the UK. And they will set up networks there to push drugs in the, you know, these, these areas where they're rich, where there's rich pickings. And it's all the kids, and this is what we're seeing. We're seeing kids literally killing kids. And it's been orchestrated by these bigger gangs that are very hands-off. And we're seeing a lot of violence. But I think the other thing that is fueling a lot of the violence as well is the middle classes in the UK as well, because the middle classes are very active cocaine users. And you have to, you know, I think a lot of these people need to take a really serious look at themselves because they're obviously actively buying cocaine on a regular basis. It's a recreational drug. Um, these are people in very powerful positions. They have good jobs. But they are fueling a lot of this violence too by what by their practices. So again, you know, it's it's, it's a very deep rooted problem, 
Um, and it, you know, as I say, I think we're seeing more knife crime on our streets at the moment than probably more. A few years back, we saw more gun crime, but at the moment, the, the main topic of conversation here is kids killing kids. How is it with terrorism? We we always, I always hear in the news, and I have this vision in my mind that terrorism hotbeds would be considered London and the bigger urban areas of the United Kingdom. Is there any truth to that? Yeah, I mean, when I was growing up, John, you know, in the 70s and 80s, it was a massive problem here because we were very much under under siege from the IRA, you know, the uh, Irish Republican Army. It was a big, big issue. Um, and, and we've had, we've, you know, with the IKE, the sort of situation in the 2000s and that we had some, some scares in, in Birmingham. And obviously, as we know, there were there were some horrific attacks down in London um, where, where the number of uh, suicide bombers and let off bombs and, and killed a number of people. But, you know, touch wood, we manage terrorism very well in the UK. I think we've got a very good infrastructure. And at the moment, and I'm touching wood as I say this, we are in a fairly decent place. Whether COVID has had an impact on that, I don't know. But at the moment, I would say it's not really. It's always a risk. We're always, we're always at a reasonable level of, of, of risk. But at the moment, I think it's been managed very well, and um, you know, long may that continue. We have a lot of unrest, a lot of civil unrest, a lot of uh, political disharmony, riots, whatever terms people want to use going on in the United States. Uh, are you experiencing similar in the United Kingdom? Yeah, we are actually, John. Probably not to the same levels, but I think one of the things that really has been quite disturbing for me as well has been there's been a lot of um, anti-COVID injection or, or immunisation and marches. That's been kind of the, 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 the big sort of thing recently. There was the fallout around the uh, George Floyd George Floyd um, um, horrific incident, and we had some protests around that. Um, but one of the things that I've been really disturbed about over the last sort of few months is the attitude of certain members of our communities towards police officers and the horrific behaviour that is demonstrated. We've had a number of officers quite seriously injured on duty. Um, I was actually looking at a, a, a photo the other day where an officer had sort of had several staples in, in a really nasty head wound. Um, that's got to change for me. You know, we are we are one of the best police services in the world, you know, and who do people call when they're in trouble? You know, they don't they don't call ghostbusters, they call right. us they call the law enforcement people and we're the people that go and sort it out and make their lives better. So there's a few people in the UK at the moment, John, that need to take a long, hard look at themselves and realise that you know, we are an amazing police service and they've got to start treating us with a bit more respect. Please do me uh, a favour. Let your colleagues up. in law enforcement uh, know that they, they have a home here at Law Enforcement Today on the radio show. Before we run out of time, I want to talk about what you're doing now. You have developed a, a pretty big podcast in the United Kingdom. Tell us what it's called and tell us more about it. Yeah. It's called the Community Safety Podcast. And I started it and in September last year. Uh, did a big sort of campaign leading up to the launch in September. So what we do, what we do, John, is we get a number of guests from within community safety. So we'll cover some of the subjects that we've talked about today. You know, we'll do knife crime. We'll do um, you know, historical kind of crime as well, like we were talking about with the Peaky Blinders, um, uh, on a base violence, um, drugs, all sorts of different subjects. But I get some really key people on. And because I've got that experience within that field, you know, I've got over 25 years, I could hold my own and I can sort of, 
give my opinions, and we just we just have a really great conversation. Um, we've been very very lucky to have some amazing guests from a whole host of areas of expertise, and it just makes for a great show. We're, we've been in the top two percent of all podcasts, which is just an amazing, amazing sort Great of, job. Kudos uh, to you. Do you guys have a website? Yeah, Where can people get more information? Um, it's on all the major podcast platforms. So it's on Apple, Spotify, Google, you name it, it's on it. And uh, and your listeners can also tap into our website, which is www.thecommunitysafetypodcast.co.uk. And there's a real why about why we're doing this. You know, it's about transforming communities, similar to what we've been talking about today, and also about saving lives. And Jim Nixon, thanks so much for your service, and thanks so much for all you do and being a guest on the Law Enforcement Show. All very much appreciated. Thanks, John. Appreciate it. I'd like to thank our guests so much for coming on the Law Enforcement Today radio show. The Law Enforcement Today radio show is a nationally syndicated radio show broadcast on numerous stations once a week and growing. If you enjoyed the podcast version of the show, please do me a big favor. Tell a friend. I'll be back in just a couple days with a brand new episode of the Law Enforcement Today radio show and podcast. Until then, this is John J. Wiley. See ya. See ya.